Welcome to the sermon podcast of Faith Lutheran Church in Oregon, Wisconsin, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ crucified and the promises of God that our faith clings to. For more information, visit us online at faithlutheranoregon.com. You probably heard of the conjugation of the planets, uh, Jupiter and Saturn, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, people were calling it the return of the Christmas star, almost as if it were a, a sequel uh, or something to the, to the Christmas uh, star that appeared when Christ was, was born. And I saw a lot of crazy interpretations of it on social media about what these, this alignment of these two planets might mean. And, 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 and a lot of them were as if God was giving us a sign. And as I read through them, they implied that if you, if you looked hard enough, you too could figure out the mind of God by looking at the stars. Because that's what the wise men did too, right? But the epiphany and the visit of the wise men, or as, as Scripture calls them, the magi, from where we get the term magician, uh, actually shows us the exact opposite. You can't figure out the mind of God by looking at the stars or anything else for that matter. Because if you read the account of the wise men closely, they couldn't find the place where Jesus was just by looking at the star. In fact, the way Scripture describes it, the star rose when Jesus was conceived, but then disappeared until it rose again when the wise men departed from Jerusalem to go to Bethlehem. Now, we're not told exactly how they knew that this star meant something, but consider that these wise men, these magi, were from the east. Well, what country is east of Israel that has magi? Babylon. Babylon is a heathen, pagan nation where Israel had been captive 400 years before this. And there are four Israelites that you know of that had ascended to become magi in Babylon. Three of them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were thrown into a fire. Another one, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. And Daniel actually uh, was the the head or the chief of the Magi in Babylon. And Daniel surely would have had copies of the Jewish Torah, or the first five books of the the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Vigas, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, with him, and and he would have given those to his fellow Magi and, and proclaimed to them of the promise of the Messiah, And those promises of God would have likely been passed down from generation to generation of Magi, and those books of the Torah continue to be read. In one of those books, Numbers, we get this prophecy. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. So how do they know about the star? God's word. So, following God's word, not the star, they go to Israel. And they go to where they would expect to find a king to be, the palace. But, of course, he's not there. So, Herod, whom we heard about last or this past Sunday, asks his wise men, the the priests and the scribes, where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. And where do they find the answer? God's word. From Micah 5, verse 2. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are certainly not least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler 
who will shepherd my people, Israel. So with this answer from Scripture, the wise men are able to find the Christ child after the star rises again and settles over the house where he is. And this is the first thing that the epiphany shows to us. The star actually teaches us something about how we find Christ today. Creation can only get you so far. Creation can give, can give evidence of God's power and glory, uh, but it cannot bring you to Christ. It cannot bring you to the light that will overcome your darkness. For that, you need a revelation, which is what the word epiphany means. We cannot know or find Christ apart from his revealed word. And this actually sets the theme for the entire Epiphany season. Every Sunday this season in Epiphany, we focus on a manifestation of Christ revealed in his word. But on receiving the word of God, there's only two responses. The wise men signify one of them. What do the wise men do upon hearing the word of God? They go to Jesus. They go to where Jesus is, and they fall down and worship him. At home, we've got a, uh, one of the Bible, baby believer books, uh, and many of our families uh, here at church have one of these too now. Uh, but in one of them, the book describes the visit of the wise men just like that. They fell down and worshiped Jesus. And whenever we read this, my oldest son uh, takes this literally and actually falls down to the ground. Uh, but this posture of falling down and worshiping, actually laying yourself flat on the ground, this is not some half-hearted show of emotion. This is pure awe and reverence. And just think how incredibly offensive this would have been to Matthew's audience. Matthew's writing his gospel to a predominantly Jewish audience, and he describes how Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament scriptures. The Jews hated the Gentiles, and especially the Babylonians, and vice versa. The Babylonians would have maybe considered their own kings to be gods and, and revere and worship them, but, but to consider a Jewish king to be God, that is unthinkable. And yet these Gentile men fall to the ground to revere the king of the Jews as God. Meanwhile, what are the Jewish priests who looked into the scriptures and told the wise men where to go? What did they do? Absolutely nothing. Actually, worse than nothing. They read the scripture and told Herod where he was so Herod could kill him. There are only two responses to the word of God. You cannot be neutral to the word of God. The word either works faith, which believes and goes to worship Jesus, or unbelief, which stays and worships self. Matthew's account of the Epiphany is a lesson on how God works. He doesn't only call clever people. He doesn't only call good people, only the people who read the signs and, and nature and determine God's will, or only pastors and priests, only good people. God calls his enemies. 
He calls Gentiles, those who have no reason to worship him, those who have been dark, down dark roads in their past. And God calls his enemies through only one way, his word. And God does not change. He works the same way to us today, through his word. And upon hearing the word, we have two options. We can do nothing. We can act like God come to earth in the flesh is no big deal. And we can go about our lives in unbelief and continue down the road of darkness. Or, we can be like the wise men and go to where Jesus is and fall down and worship. And what do the wise men do? They give three gifts. But these gifts, too, tend to be misunderstood. The focus on these gifts tends to, to get applied to us in this way. What can we give to God? What can you give to God like the wise men gave something? And our worship, uh, then, something we give to God, becomes like magic. Through centuries of moralism, this is the way modern American Christianity thinks of worship, something I give to God. And if I can give God king-like gifts, then maybe God will, will be really good to me. And so, my act of reading the Bible becomes a gift I offer to God. My act of taking the Lord's Supper becomes a gift I offer to God. My act of going to church or watching a church live stream becomes a gift I offer to God. And if I can, can give enough of these little gifts over the course of, of a life, then, then God will reward me. And the gift then becomes entirely subjective. One person may feel as if reading the Bible just once a year, that's good enough. Another, that well, just praying before meals, that's all I need. Another thinks that going to church once a year is enough. Another uh, twice a year, another twice a month, and, and so on. But this is a complete misunderstanding of the gifts of the Magi. The gifts given are prophetic. They signify further who this young child was and the way God works. And the wise men probably don't even recognize the significance of their gifts. But God was working through them to show us something about the way he works. First, they gave gold. Gold was the primary metal used in the temple. And it was a gift you would only give to a king. Second, they gave frankincense, which was an incense used, uh, primarily used in connection with burnt offerings, uh, burnt sacrifices at the temple. And third, they gave myrrh, which was a spice used to anoint the body in preparation for burial. And all of these gifts are to say that Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the sacrifice who gives himself as a pleasing aroma for our sins, and that Jesus is true man who actually dies to atone for our sins and the sins of the entire world, Jew or Gentile. As St. Paul says, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly displayed as the atonement seat through faith in his blood. The atonement seat was the, the gold cover of the Ark of the Covenant, the heart of the temple, where God literally dwelt and judged his people. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of that mercy seat, that atonement seat, and judges us. We are justified, that is, judged as righteous through Jesus. And we've done nothing to deserve it. These gifts actually let us know that Jesus gives everything to us. See, there's only one thing that we can give to God. Our sin. We can't give God our hearts. We can't give God our worship. We can't give God our time. We can't give God anything. He doesn't need it or want it because he owns everything. He has everything already. He made all of it. And so when we respond to the word of God, like the wise men, and go and worship Christ, it's not something that we're doing. Rather, it's God giving us his gifts especially in the most dearest way, from the mercy seat of the altar and his body and blood at the altar today. As our chief hymn so beautifully put it, Jesus, thy spirit and thy word, thy body and thy blood afford my soul its dearest treasure. And you may be thinking, ah, their pastor goes again talking about the Lord's Supper and the gospel. But just wrap your mind around this. The gospel, which you can actually see and taste here, justifies you and makes you holy, sanctifies you all at the same time, at once. And by, by faith given to us, you and I actually become new people. We become wise men and women. God reveals his glory to you. He gives you an epiphany today through the same body and blood of Jesus that the wise men saw here today at the altar. This is the most incredible way God works. And this changes our motivation. It affects our posture and changes our life. The wise men, when they left, Matthew says, they went home by a different route. After today and after every Sunday, when we receive God's gifts, we depart from here by a different route. Not by the road of the world which is ever-changing and filled with chances, with accusations and, and uncertainties, but we depart by the road of faith. We have a new way of seeing ourselves and those around us. It's the road of being forgiven. And our destination is already known. And so we pray, Keep me kindly in thy favor, O my Savior. Thou wilt cheer me. Thy word calls me to draw near thee. In your name, amen.